It's very powerful the way this impacts girls because what you're looking at is very much structured like a rite of passage where you are struggling with a, a phase in your life. You go through a kind of transformation and that transformation gives you a new status and then you show your new status to the community and this community celebrates you in that new status. Those are the actual foundational structures of a rite of passage. So you can see how that would really, really impact a young girl who is struggling, especially in a culture where we aren't adequately giving adolescents rites of passage like we should be. Now you see something like gender ideologies very much taking up that space. And so the feeling that, that these girls get when they go through a radical transformation and then they go online and everyone's like, oh my God, you're so beautiful. You did it. You're amazing. I can't, you know, like that humans are programmed to experience that again. That is ancient, ancient sort of technology. Of course, girls in the short term feel great because they're being put through this, this sequence that is known to have deep psychological impact on a human being. And you're correct when, the, when there's the follow up years later. I'm confident we're going to see the same thing as we're seeing with the detransitioners. I think the rise in labiaplasties, I think down the road, we're going to have a lot of girls with nerve damage and um, with struggles sexually and with other things because they, they bought into this trend and they allowed doctors to operate on them who were not qualified. And as, as Jessica pinpoints out, they, they don't even understand female anatomy, which is terrifying. You know, it's terrifying that, that all these doctors are operating on these young girls' genitalia without even really knowing the structure of them. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Before we begin today's episode, I have a couple of exciting announcements I don't want you to miss out on. Number one, the film I am proud to be a part of, Affirmation Generation, is now available. This film does an incredible job of exposing the gender crisis, and we want it to reach therapists, doctors, parents, teachers, politicians, and anyone in a position to care. You can stream our early access edition of this film online anytime, as well as watch the trailer, learn more, or donate to the film at affirmationgenerationmovie.com. Number two, I've started a new private online community for listeners of this podcast. You can find it at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. This new offering fulfills several needs. Over the past year, my reach has grown exponentially, and while it delights me to know that my podcast is now in the top 2.5% globally, the matching rise in the amount of emails and DMs I receive has been overwhelming. It's simply too much for one person to handle, and while I care about my listeners, staring at a screen typing words at them for free feeds neither my stomach nor my soul. I had to create some kind of filter to make my engagement feel sustainable and nourishing to me. And fortunately, this is exactly what Locals was designed to do for independent content creators like myself. When you join my Locals community as a supporting member for $8 a month, 
You get to submit questions that I will answer in members-only Q&A live streams. I'm also considering offering behind-the-scenes early access to new podcasts as they're being recorded. Plus, of course, you get to meet light-minded people who share your interests in an online environment that's free of ads, bullies, and trolls. With Locals, you also get to choose how much you reveal about yourself on your profile so you can be undercover or out in the open. And you get to select whether your posts in my community are visible to anyone who drops by or only to other committed members. If you'd like to support me at a higher level, you can become a premium member for $24 a month, which allows you to privately message me, and I will prioritize responding to premium members' direct messages. I think this is a great solution that is designed to meet everyone's needs. Although we are just getting started and this community is currently small and new, we've already got some great people on board, including thoughtful therapists, concerned parents, and free-thinking, politically homeless people. Please come along and check out my growing community at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. You can get your first month free with promo code GRANDFATHER. Make the most of your trial membership by asking a question in the latest Q&A thread, and I will provide a live-streamed answer you can join me for or watch later. What have you got to lose? All right, now on to today's episode. Today, my guest is Simon Essler. He is a filmmaker, an actor, and an unschooling father. And I recently watched his film, Cut, Daughters of the West, which exposes the cosmetic surgery industry that is being marketed especially to vulnerable young women and girls. It's a very compelling film and I believe it just came out. Is that right, Simon? So uh, the world premiere is on April 15th. Oh, wow. Exciting. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there's, there is one opportunity coming up that a small group's going to get to see it before that through an NFT series that I'm releasing. Well, thank but you that's... for giving me the privilege of having seen it uh, early. Um, it's excellent. And I think this episode will probably come out just in time to help you with that launch. Um, so, and we'll just lead with this. Where can people go to see your film? Is it that URL to... right there on the screen? Yes. Daughtersofthewestfilm.com. That will give you uh, access to pre-order the film, uh, and then after after April fifteenth, you'll be able to to purchase and watch the film. And if you join the email list on the website, that will give you a code to get ten percent off the film. Okay, great. Um, and in addition to all of that, you also said that you're helping to build Dad Army and working closely with Mom Army. You have a lot of fascinating interests that we probably won't get to explore the full range today, but I did want to talk about cut daughters of the west it is it is so good um and i i have so many questions for you i mean first of all i want to commend you for looking into this topic it's a really dark and grim topic and um so i'll just sort of tell the audience what it starts with it starts with labiaplasty um and i had no idea before watching this film that there is this huge trend growing over the past decade plus of um, this plastic surgery industry basically marketing the idea to insecure young women, including under the age of 18, that there's something wrong with the natural shape of their labia. And, and now I'm discovering that this is a huge problem. And then you lead from there into other aspects of the plastic surgery industry and to how this all connects to the transgender phenomenon. 
So what inspired you to look into this issue of labiaplasties being marketed to teen girls? Well, I already had done this deep dive into the the war on the family for this docuseries that I had done before this. And just in that research, I was looking at what seemed to be specific warfare operations that were targeting the mother, the father, and the children. And when I was looking at what was really hurting children and what seemed to be affecting them the most, I came up against gender ideology. And so I ended up doing a lot of research into that topic and doing a deep dive and ended up finding out that it was affecting girls way more than boys. And that that struck me very hard. And when I went to look at what the pushback was like, what I found was that there was a lot of, um, there was a politicization of the issue that I thought was actually pretty harmful. And that, you know, the, the extreme left and extreme right kind of media responses that were pitting the left and the right against each other were actually watering down the issue and making an issue that isn't entirely political into something that seems, they make it seem entirely political. And Growing up as a teenager, I, I often felt deeply disturbed by the way culture affected women and girls. That was really, really bothered me. And I had this sense that there, there was more going on than just the gender ideology aspect, that it couldn't just be about the fact that gender ideology was inserted, you know, technically by the left and then just exploded in girls. And to me, having studied social engineering for a long time, it made no sense that something could take off like that without having more of a cultural foundation. And so I, I wanted to dig around in cosmetic surgery and look into what the connections were there. And that was just like an intuitive move on my part. And it was in moving through that research that I found this, this exponential rise in teenage labiaplasties and all the misinformation and disinformation surrounding that. And to me, it seemed like a big puzzle piece and also an important element of this to bring forward because I felt like if I could give people this broader insight into this topic and into the struggle of young girls in Western society, I could help create a conversation that would neutralize some of those political narratives and invite both sides into discussing what's really going on here to perhaps save more girls so that I wasn't releasing something that seemed like or that could be interpreted as a right-wing attack against gender ideology. You use the term social engineering. You say that you've studied how social engineering works. Can you describe for people who aren't familiar with that term what you mean by that? So social engineering has to do with, you know, the the science of of groups and um, the ability to create social conditions that manage the behavior and cognition of groups. And so, you know, you look at someone like Edward uh, Bernays, his name was, and he, you know, he worked with the pork industry uh, when they were failing. He helped make this idea of bacon a staple for breakfast. And everyone suddenly believed that you should have bacon at breakfast. And this just became this cultural foundational thing. And everyone went forward and they performed that behavior. And there wasn't any sort of scientific truth to it. It was, it was an attempt to save the pork industry. And now we see that even carrying on today good example of social engineering where a behavioral scientist can create the conditions culturally that um, allow a certain amount of groupthink to steer society in one particular direction. We are susceptible to this because we need groupthink to an extent. Humans have evolved with this because we're social creatures. And I think, you know, there's a balance here where 
we we can use that social element of our existence in beneficial ways, but it's also a, a way that we can be misled quite easily, especially if our culture doesn't educate people to be free thinking enough to notice social engineering when it's at play. Makes me think of that sort of classic phrase that necessity is the mother of invention and ways in which the reverse is true, that sometimes invention is the mother of necessity. And I think your film does a good job of demonstrating that because you look at the origins of plastic and cosmetic surgeries. And there's a a story there that you tell quite succinctly about how these technologies, these medical technologies originated from the need to help people who are grossly disfigured by war and other sort of tragic, monstrous injuries. And so there is this burgeoning industry of cosmetic surgeons and plastic surgeons. And then after World War II was over, they needed something to do. They needed yeah. patience, right? And, and you know, that's similar, but a lot more grotesque to like Gillette marketing more razors by introducing the idea of women shaving their legs. That, that wasn't a thing a century ago, right? It's like, oh, we can create new customer base by convincing people that they need a particular thing that we have to offer. And so so it, it went from these um, surgeries that I think could, you know, we could easily make the case for the medical necessity of um, surgeries to restore a more normal appearance to someone whose face was disfigured by a horrible accident. And But where do we draw the line as a culture with that leading into um, what cosmetic surgery has been over the past decades and then this newer trend that's all the more disturbing of both, I mean, the combination of labiaplasty itself for women of any age, as well as it being marketed to teen girls. Like, yeah. how did that happen? And and since you uh, since you and your work turned me on to this trend, I started following, um, I can't remember her name, maybe you do. Jessica Penn. Thank you, Jessica, Jessica yes. Penn on Twitter, who's great doing work. some really great work. She was somebody who was harmed um, herself as a teen girl who had labiaplasty marketed to her. And she's been doing great work raising awareness about um, the fact that doctors aren't even being given adequate information about female genital anatomy and the the nerve endings and the location of the clitoris and um, that these surgeries can be really harmful to people. But, you know, and part of what, what your work illuminates and what her work illuminates is that really they're talking about women with normal anatomy and redefining normal anatomy as hypertrophy, right? Which means excessive growth. So that basically any woman with, you could say even like above average size of labia minora is now being convinced that there's something unsightly about this. It's, It's a very, it's a clever and sinister marketing campaign. Yeah. It really, really creeped me out. When I found all the, you know, the, the cosmetic surgery journals describing this and going through their their angle on this, it was entirely transparent to me that there was uh, there was a sinister agenda, really, because on the one hand, they were going on about how, you know, teen girls are just doing this because of new media trends and and from exposure to pornography and increasing vulvar visibility in the media. And on the other hand, they're saying uh, they all also have 
labia minora hypertrophy. But to me, it was like, wait, what? So they're being influenced by media, but also they're all deformed. And so the way they got influenced by media, it's fine that they're getting this because it just turns out that we're fixing their deformities. It doesn't add up at all. It's really, really sketchy. Um, And so to me, this was, again, like a foundation in terms of culture, you know, this this whole industry that is willing to coerce girls into permanently changing their bodies when they're at their most vulnerable. To me, like that was such a clear connection to the explosion in girls who have identified as transgender and sought out medical, medical intervention. Of course, there was a willing industry of cosmetic surgeons who they don't even need to be gender ideologues. They were already okay with this to a great extent. And it's really important for people to understand that because that is not at all a political issue. That's like there's something deeply morally incorrect with this industry and what they're willing to do to children. And um, people on both sides of the political aisle should be quite outraged and disturbed by it. One of the more disturbing, I mean, the whole film was disturbing. And I, and I will warn <laughs> viewers, you know, I was tweeting as I was watching your film and you were tweeting back at me. And yeah. at some point, I, I think I tweeted very early on and you said, hope you enjoy the rest of the film. And I said, this isn't really about enjoyment. Like, that's it's not the true. vibe. It's um, not. It's, you know, and you know, and I would sort of contrast it with the tone of our film Affirmation Generation, which is heavy, but also kind of it's it's linear and sequential and kind of takes you from one thing into another with like an appropriately like grave tone. But I think you go a step further because you really kind of I see that you're an artist and you give yourself that artistic license to make this not just a factual documentary, but also something really emotionally evocative. Um, and, and so the film, it's, it's, it's a right-brained work of art. Um, so I will say the whole thing is disturbing in tone because you really designed it artistically to match the feelings that it's appropriate for people, people to have about these things that are going on. So that being said, one of the many disturbing things I learned about in your film was, um, that these, these surgeries that are based on convincing young women that their normal variations in their genital anatomy are problematic and need surgery. Um, This is being touted as having mental health benefits. That was really shocking to me. And and the narrative goes, if I understand correctly, something like having a deformed body, meaning a you know, this so-called hypertrophy, which really just means normal variation in the shape of a woman's labia, having this so-called problem is uh, has a negative impact on a woman's self-esteem. And so fixing the problem by fixing her body can help improve her self-esteem. Now, I don't, I don't think that reasonable people would agree with that sort of philosophy when it comes to how we treat other types of plastic surgery. Like I don't, I don't hear people making the argument that women should get well, I don't know. I think maybe there are people making the argument. They're just not the type of people I socialize with. <laughs> mm-hmm. Making arguments that, you know, doing something like um getting lip filler is a good treatment for depression because it's a it's so sad when your lips aren't plump enough and it'll make you happier if your lips are nice and full. Like I I feel like I'm just going to sort of play around here. There is an element of sort of 
feminine female culture in our society that's like retail therapy or like I'm going to go wash that man out of my hair and get my hair done. You know, like I'm hearing like the Lizzo song of like getting her hair done and, you know, like there's like I'm going to get my nail. You know, there there is this kind of like culture around like beautification processes as a form of so-called therapy. But I feel like mostly that stuff only goes so deep in the culture. And there are women who play into that. And then there are women like me who just, that's not our culture. And we, um, but I feel like the general, like if you were to ask most people, like, no, seriously, do you really think that this is like what mental health is all about? Do you think that th- this is the way to approach psychological treatment? I think most people would say, well, no, it's just being silly. It's just being vain. Like, but people are free to do what they want to their appearance. But, you know, so I feel like my sense is that there there are these narratives in the culture, but they're rather superficial. And everyone kind of knows that they're kind of consumeristic and vain. Um, but to know that there are actually medical professionals like trying to get away with <laughs> it would be yeah. it would be like a, a parallel would be like if a doctor had a contract with Nordstrom's and was like trying to tout retail therapy as a treatment for depression you know <laughs> yes like exactly yeah it's really it's creepy it's very creepy that these doctors like they have developed a culture where they together, because they're having conferences, they have their journals that justify all of this, that go on about, you know, this was in the film as well, right? About the how, how annoying it is that parents won't consent to it. And really, like, your job is, if the girl wants it, to really side with the girl and not the parents, right? So again, like, you have this, being against parental consent is the attitude that, that I found in the literature. Um, you know... It, it's interesting because humans have always modified their bodies for beauty purposes, right? Like that's an old thing, right? Women have always done different things to reveal their beauty. You have the history of tattoos, piercings, there's cultures where women elongate their necks. So there is some of this that is part of the basic human story. But I think what has happened that is quite different is that those situations, let's say if we're looking at like a tribe who who has beautifying rituals like that that's something that they created collectively together and they imbued it with this meaning and as a means of exploring beauty and and you know seeking to create attraction whereas what we're dealing with now is something that is produced in a centralized system of cultural production and then pumped out to people on mass and then again we're getting into this idea of social engineering right where you have a small conglomerate of of media entities that control the majority of that messaging and uh, you have a celebrity system that very manages body imagery and things like this very tightly. And so from that centralized system of production, it's then pumped out to people and then they're going through the rituals of modifying their bodies according to that. That's very different than a culture collectively creating meaning together in a more decentralized way. And I don't think we really took heed of what it meant for us to become a consumer culture where more of what we're doing is consuming than creating. Now, I see this changing, right? We can see that independent media is on the rise. There is a decentralization of media occurring. Um, But I don't think we really understood what it meant to be a consumer culture and to have these entities 
producing meaning and ideas of beauty for us. And that's one of the, I think, the foundational things that has misled us. We really did not notice what was or what the implications of that really were. And healthcare professionals backing it. That's mm. what real. it's what disturbs me about the gender crisis. Like it's one thing to have a cultural trend um, that violates the principles of sound physical or mental health, but that people are free to participate in because we have free will. And like you say, we're, we're social creatures, but, but adding the weight of institutions and, you know, trying to pass this off as like peer reviewed science. Yes. I mean, it's like, um, I don't know if you ever saw the, um, I believe it was called the chest dysphoria scale that was used to um, prove the so-called mental health benefits of elective double mastectomies for gender-confused youth. So, like when they when they try to prove um, that this is this is a good thing for people, of course, you know all all the data is flawed for a number of reasons. One is that they're looking at the wrong time scale. I really don't care how someone feels three months or even three years. Mm-hmm. after getting a body part removed because that body part's never coming back. I want to know about 10 years, 30 years down the line, right? Yep. Um, it, you know, the way someone feels a few months later, they're still in that phase of there, there is a strong placebo effect going on because they have been building this idea up for years that they're going to feel better when this happens. And so there's, you know, easily they could still be fooling themselves. It's very powerful the way this impacts girls because what you're looking at is very much structured like a rite of passage where you are struggling with a a phase in your life. You go through a kind of transformation and that transformation gives you a new status and then you show your new status to the community and this community celebrates you in that new status. Those are the actual foundational structures of a rite of passage. So you can see how that would really, really impact a young girl who is struggling, especially in a culture where we aren't adequately giving adolescents rites of passage like we should be. I'm a firm believer that we need ceremony and rites of passage for children to experience the difficult movement into adulthood. And we don't have those cultural containers as much as we used to. And now you see something like gender ideologies very much taking up that space. And so the feeling that that these girls get and they go through a radical transformation and then they go online and everyone's like, oh my God, you're so beautiful. You did it. You're amazing. I can't, you know, like that humans are programmed to experience that. Again, that is ancient, ancient sort of technology, cultural technology, you could say, that these, this rite of passage, passage structure. So of course, girls in the short term feel great because they're being put through this, this, this sequence that is known to have deep psychological impact on a human being. And you're correct. When, the, when there's the follow-up years later, I'm confident we're going to see the same thing as we're seeing with the detransitioners. I think the rise in labiaplasties, I think down the road, we're going to have a lot of girls with nerve damage and um, with struggles sexually and with other things um, because they, they bought into this trend and they allowed doctors to operate on them who were not qualified. And as, as Jessica pinpoints out, they, they don't even understand anatomy, female anatomy. 
um, which is terrifying. You know, it's terrifying that that all these doctors are operating on these young girls' genitalia without even really knowing the structure of them. If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. I'm so glad that you brought up that point about the rite of passage. And I, I couldn't agree more. This is something that I've thought about a lot as I've been dealing with the the gender hysteria over the last few years, looking at it squarely. Like, what needs does this fulfill or or promise to fulfill? Um, what What voids is it stepping into? And I do think a lot of it has to do with how we live in such a secular society, which has afforded us many freedoms and a fair deal of equality um, and diversity. So there's there's beauty to living in a, a non-religious society, but but it leaves a void. And uh, rites of passage are something that are, as far as I'm aware, pretty universal amongst almost all spiritual and religious traditions. Yep. Um, whether, you know, it's a bar bat mitzvah or the quinceañera, the, um, what, what's it called in Catholicism? Catechism. Cate- I don't remember. That. I don't remember. <laughs> I'm not Catholic. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, and of course, indigenous cultures have rites of passage for their young men and, and young women. And, um, and there is, I agree, like a need to go through something symbolic with some sort of external or concrete structures to it, some activities that you do that the people around you participate in as a way of making real and, and giving some structure to this thing that's going on inside of you. Because adolescence is a a time of great change and turmoil, probably more powerful than any other time in life, the amount of change that's taking place. I often think about it like, you know, the 
caterpillar going into the chrysalis and everything dissolves and everything's being reorganized and you don't yet know um, what those, I believe, imaginal cells are going are going to become. And that can just be so disorienting. You need that structure of the chrysalis to contain the disorientation and the, the mess of it all. Um, I did have the honor of helping with the teen girls write a passage ceremony of um, way back more than a decade ago now, just volunteering to help an older woman who was facilitating it for her daughter and some other girls. And we took them out for several days camping, actually sleeping in a teepee um, out in Mount Shasta, California, and um, doing rituals and having dialogues and being in connection with nature. And um, I think it's very grounding to have some sort of way of making it palpable that, yes, I am going through this change and and everyone and everything around me is adjusting to that. And right now, with everything being online, um, as it has been increasingly for the last decade plus, but then all that much more intensively for the last three years or so, it really takes away that element of things feeling real, like they have a time and a place and a season. You know, I remember, for example, the decision to drive down to my state capital in Salem with my friends Camille and Elise to go testify against um, proposed legislation here. And I remember making that decision, like it could testify online, but um, I, I do so much of my work online and I want to feel like real life is unfolding. I want to to be in that room with other, those other people. And it was so much more real. And gosh, my heart was pounding and my, my stomach was in knots. Um, because I was testifying uh, in opposition to a bill that most people were there to testify in support of. But, you know, I think we need these moments in life where real things are happening and every everything in our environment of a of a temporal and a physical and a social nature is is confirming that. And that's what a rite of passage is. It's we're going to completely restructure what's happening for these hours or days or weeks that the rite of passage lasts to really um, work symbolically with this process that's happening inside of you. And, you know, when that's missing, what steps in to fill its void? Well, before the current trends that you and I are concerned about, you know, back when I was growing up, like cutting and anorexia and bulimia were the main um, ways that girls expressed their distress. And those are very physical too, right? It's that kind of self-inflicted harm, but it's, and I remember when I was um, in the early stages of training to be a therapist, some of the training I received around ways of talking to teen girls about self-harm. And I remember being given some really useful language around like the needs that that can serve. And one of them is, is, is that like, is it that you're in so much pain inside that you feel like you need a way to make that real, to make it palpable or to kind of transfer that pain to your body because then you're kind of passing it along. Um, in your film, you draw these connections, and it's it's in the title of your film, and it's also in the flow of your film, Cut, Daughters of the West. You talk about sort of that connection between the sort of self-harm we think about when we think about teen girls, you know, literally taking a sharp object to their own skin, um, and, you know, this increasing trend of, go- of these girls going to professionals to anesthetize them and take sharp objects to their skin with a different aim in mind. So how did you sort of weave those concepts together or what insights do you have about that sort of um, somaticizing of the inner transformation? 
there is a struggle to embody like the the process of embodiment is is a difficult thing for us all but of course especially for adolescents and i would say even more so for adolescent girls than boys because the the physical change is is not only more dramatic but it has so much more cultural power um the the way that a girl is perceived when she is moving into adolescence it it drastically changes and you know i've been doing some research just into uh, the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere of the brain and some of the differences in, in how they function and and what our culture does in terms of what it encourages in our brain function. Um, there's a book called The Master and His Emissary by Ian McGillicrist that I've been going through and he gets into this. And one of the things he points out is that our left brain, in terms of relating to our body, it very much sees our body as these parts right? It's like just, it, it it sees it as an amalgamation of parts and it functions as these parts where it is our right hemisphere that experiences um, the, the body as, as, as a source of embodiment, the identity embodied within this holistic sense of who you are. And it connects you to this, this whole sense of your being. And I think that's really, really interesting because from what I can tell, our culture generally pushes people way more towards left brain thinking. There's, there's a pressure to be more left brain in our thinking. And even gender ideology itself, you can very much see that this is how it's encouraging girls to see the body just as an amalgamation of parts. And perhaps you just have the wrong parts and you need to get one of your parts switched or taken off and then you will be your true self, which um, is antithetical to the way the, the, the right hemisphere experiences, you know, that embodiment and that sense of self within the whole body and, and how we live through the body. And I think culturally, this seems to be a much deeper theme that we're struggling with. The, the act of becoming fully embodied, of arriving in your vehicle totally with love and acceptance. We are not very good at producing that in any human beings. And I would say a lot of the problems we have seems to seems to be related to this imbalance in the way that our culture actually has our brain functioning. And uh, I find that very fascinating. So, you know, I, I think a lot of this might be connected to that, that girls are struggling to arrive peacefully within their bodies. And that now we're seeing all these different expressions of that deep and quite violent struggle. And I think, you know, culture in general, has mistreated female biology and female anatomy at a very, very deep level. And this is something that I came up against when I was researching and writing for my docuseries, Superorganism. This is one of the things that I found that it's just, our culture seems to be against the female form on so many levels. When you look at the way we treat birthing and the hospitalization of the birthing process, and um, the push to have formula replace breastfeeding. There was, there was a, a period in the United States where breastfeeding almost disappeared for like 50 years. Um, you, you have a lot, um, a lot going on where female bodies are being ignored in what they're actually capable of. This has crescendoed, I would say, in the way that gender ideology is now trying to take away the biological legacy of women and have biological men take up these women's spaces and these women's titles. But it was there long before that in the way that we just did not really deeply acknowledge the female form. And Jessica Pinn's work is very excellent with that as well, that 
you don't even have the anatomy of the clitoris in medical textbooks in a lot of places. So there is an underlying struggle to, I think, embody the female form on this collective level. And we're seeing this sort of grotesque manifestation of that coming to a crescendo. What do you think drives that, that deep, profound disrespect for the female body? Well, it's very, very, very powerful. And I think, you know, it's one of the things, even though I see that in some ways, feminism and women's liberation has been infiltrated and used for other things. It's one of the things that it is quite accurate about. I think there is a power struggle that if the female form were to be truly seen and uplifted culturally, right? And this is one of the things that I'm very passionate about. I have videos that I've put out online about this. Even just if our culture properly celebrated the female form, I think there would be a shift in the power dynamics of our society. And, you know, you look at, for example, the way that feminism was used to get the mother out of the home and away from the children. And this was framed as empowering women, but this was antithetical to the biological connection that was present with the mothers and the children. And, and we know this through a lot of just very good basic science, you know, like, um, there's some really beautiful science that shows that when the child is developing in the mother, the field being produced by the mother's heart actually creates a, a feedback into the child's experience. And so the states of being that the mother is in, they feed into the child's states of being and experience of the world. So if the, if the mother has a lot of, let's say, gratitude, is very meditative, this is the, the, the actual coherence of the mother's heart field is going to impact the child. But then even after the child is born, there's like there's like another nine months in which the mother's heart field is deeply informing that child's capacity to self-regulate, to, you know, to understand itself emotionally in the world. So there's forms of knowledge being passed on there that are way beyond language. That is that's like absolutely beautiful to me, but it's not culturally celebrated. And when you look at the way women are uplifted and celebrated, we're instead seeing like the hypersexualization of of women. You have like Beyonce and Miley Cyrus, you know, they're being literally framed as the ideals of feminism. Meanwhile, you have all these beautiful truths about the female form and what it's actually doing as the matrix of our species. They're not being uplifted. So I think that that does threaten the, the current power structure and it needs to be seen clearly enough while not getting caught up in, I think, a lot of the polarization that has occurred surrounding like feminism and women's liberation because of that infiltration and the polarization of it politically. Uh, we need to find ways to uplift this that are non-political and that are really about allowing our society to to accept and honor and uplift the female form. So that's that's the, a big passion for me, having done my series on the war on the families, especially when I really did a deep dive into the mother and the way that mothers are targeted. And so I think it was a natural progression for me to explore what, how is all of this affecting young girls and young women. Freud introduced the concept of penis envy, but it's like, what about womb envy, right? I mean, for, for all the things that a penis can do, like, how do you compare that to, you know, <laughs> the next steps in the reproductive process that are all on the, on the female yeah. side? Um, and I'm, I'm remembering 
you know, what's coming to mind right now is the the time I spent uh, in my in my baby adulthood, as I call it. Someone recently credited me with coining the phrase "baby adult" <laughs> to describe <laughs> eighteen to twenty four year olds. But in my in my own baby adulthood, um, when I was going through a deeply spiritual phase, I was um, I got really into Hinduism, and uh, I remember some of the um, some of the sort of tenets and precepts and scriptures that I was reading. Uh, about this particular sort of sect within Hinduism were um, clearly driven by men who were afraid of the feelings that women provoked in them. Like, and this was in a in a culture of chastity where they had the um, the monks who were called brahmacharis, um, who were supposed to not look at women, not talk to women, not think about women, not um, you know only think of God, right? And I, I'm imagining that within all of the world's major religions that there is a similar pattern of, you know, sort of attitudes towards women taught to any of the young men who are pursuing the priestly life. And um, and I remember, like, reading some really strong words that were written basically by gurus for their disciples um, about that that really like <laughs> made women sound like um i don't know the image that comes to mind is like the wizard of oz like the man behind the screen like this larger than life powerful entity that you know you better not risk seeing a glimpse of their ankle you know <laughs> um <laughs> and if you think about like the sex drive of a 20 year old man and how um yes absolutely uh, the female form has got to be terrifyingly powerful if you're trying to gain, gain mastery over your sex drive or mastery over your senses. Um, and I, I think right now we live in in such a, a time of where where sex has become cheapened and vilified and commodified. And so, you know, horny 20-year-old men, can they can have their heyday with Pornhub and it's, it's all widely available. But if and I don't think that's good for society. But if you look at um, times and places in the past when sex was not widely available, um, men will jump through whatever hoops they have to jump through to get it, right? If that means marriage, if that means building your wealth in order to attract a mate, right? So it just goes to show how much power the female form has over men. And, and I wonder if there's got to be like, such a mixture of emotions of like fear, anger, hatred, disgust, powerlessness. Um, and it's it's curious talking to you, Simon, as a man who's chosen to look into this, and you're also a husband and a father. Um, what are what are your thoughts in response to my sort of musing on that? Yeah, you know, this is it's funny. This is something that came up in my personal experience and then and then subsequently in my research. So uh, I was a very, I was very intimately involved in the pregnancy and birth of my children. We home birthed here in in a pool that we got. Um, so I was very much I was in the pool with Amanda, like at the moment of birth. I was, so I was very impacted by it, and and I very much noticed myself being changed. And I wanted to understand what was really going on, and I, I started to look into the science of fatherhood. And what I ended up uncovering was really a science of devotion 
very, very interesting that um, there is a biological difference when a man is devoted to a pregnant woman, her body basically has like a biofield that it emits. It starts to reprogram the man's body. And so a devoted father will go through a lot of actual biological changes. Um, for example, there's a, an increase in progesterone. I'm trying to remember which which hormone it is, but... Is it for men? Is it prolactin? Prolactin, that's what it is. The rise in prolactin that comes from the father being essentially devoted. So he's present during the pregnancy. You know, he's around the mother. He's in a supportive space. And so the rise in prolactin, what they found in these studies, that is caused by the, the woman's body and created in the man's body actually makes the man more responsive to the baby's cries after the child is born. And so in a sense, the woman's body is like a bridge. It's connecting him with his child. But of course, that kind of devotion and presence throughout the pregnancy, there's a certain amount of surrender there um, because a, a man is going to be changed on a deep level. And when they did these studies on these men, they were tracking all these changes in their, in their, their bodies. None of these men had any idea they're being changed this deeply. They, they, you know, so they came out the other side of it and there were all these interesting alterations in their biology. For example, they tracked the, the first moment that fathers held their newborn infant, their testosterone dropped momentarily or temporarily by 33%. And in essence, their emotional landscape was changed so that they could actually form a deeper connection with that child. But all of this is very interesting to me because it starts with the man's body being altered deeply by the woman's body. And so when I look at it from this perspective of like men being threatened and men struggling, you know, with commitment and devotion to the family, I, it's understandable to the extent that, yes, like you, literally the woman's body is actually going to change your body and you're going to be a different man. And maybe there's some sense of that that is frightening for men, you know, when you have this idea that you're going to come out the other side totally different and that you have to sort of surrender to what the woman's body is going to do to your body. Um, there's, there's something there, but it's, but it's also very beautiful. And again, these are things that I think we should be celebrating in our culture rather than sort of squashing them away and you know, giving into some of the propaganda that says the traditional family unit is dangerous and is part of, part of the patriarchy or is oppressive, all those things. That is absolutely fascinating. Um, I started reading, but have not finished yet. This is your brain on birth control. I can't mm. remember if the author's name is Dr. Sarah Hall or Hill. Um, so whichever one of those is correct, I will make sure to put it in the show notes. Um, and uh, and I, I started to come across some research along the lines of what you were talking about. I didn't know about the changes in a man during his partner's pregnancy. That's fascinating. But I know that um, testosterone drops in fathers. And and she frames this as a good thing because it represents a shift in the man's priorities um, from pursuing a mate to um, devoting himself to his existing family, right? Testosterone drives the desire for sexual novelty, which is not going to be supportive when you're trying to raise a family. So, um, yeah, that stuff is fascinating. And I love the kind of connection that you're making there that that it's incredible that we impact each other like this. And it's also terrifying. And, and what does it all mean at the end of the day? Well, 
How about that we are profoundly vulnerable to each other and that trust really matters and, and that we should be thinking very carefully about our mate choices. And I think right now as a culture, we're kind of lost as to, you know, knowing what to look for in a partner. I yeah. think especially like Gen Z seems to really be struggling with hookup culture. I think that's a big part of it. We see, you know, the the entire landscape of of dating and courtship has been drastically altered by what is definitely social engineering. That that's another great example of social engineering, right? When you look at the way sort of swipe left, swipe right design of apps, dating apps, um this affects us very deeply and I think with men, you know, you were talking about what a man would have to go through to, to attract a woman to create a strong relationship, you know, whether it was building wealth or, or physical strength or what it was. Um, one of the things that pornography has really done that's detrimental to young men is that it's sort of killed that because they can go and they can technically, they can access the alpha female to an extent and they can have that experience. Um, and there isn't the kind of struggle and hardship to get to that point. And it's it's definitely weakening men in a lot of ways. I think we have allowed ourselves to be socially engineered on so many levels that there is a lot to contend with now. There's a pretty tangled web that we're going to have to sort out, especially for Gen Z, like you said. And I think for me, I look at it just straight up as a parent where I'm like, okay, the strongest thing I can do is gather all this knowledge, look at it. Okay. Maybe I look at it as like a modern war zone because I think war has changed and we're not really dealing with tanks and bombs anymore. We're mostly dealing with cultural warfare, psychological warfare, informational warfare. So how can I raise my children within an environment like that so that they are strong and capable and can navigate the world as it is? Um, which I don't know if that gives solutions to the current Gen Z issue because I have such small children. But to an extent, we need to be thinking that way. One of the ways we have not been thinking is generationally. This idea of the seventh generation, right? That that ancient idea that comes from, uh, you know, these old forms of Aboriginal knowledge and that you need to be living now for the seventh generation. This This kind of thinking needs to be brought back because we are struggling to gather human wisdom within families, preserve that wisdom. So wisdom being like how to live a happy, stable life, how to contribute to human society in meaningful ways. We are struggling to, to produce that knowledge and that wisdom and to keep it intact and send it through the generations. And that's been a big fallout from what a lot of this is doing. It's, it's meant that the knowledge, the good knowledge that humans have gathered over the generations is just disappearing and it's not being given to the next generation. And um, we, we need to be returning to that understanding. And it doesn't have to be from a religious perspective. There are ways of doing this that I think, you know, speaking earlier to rites of passage and ceremony, you don't have to be a religious person, person to be doing that. Um, that's something I've actually studied. I'm certified as a what's called a life cycle celebrant. I studied the history and structure of ceremony and ritual. 
and became certified in the art of creating custom ceremonies and rituals because there is this, this need in society for that, but a lot of people don't want to do it from this religious perspective because they feel that dogma is an imposition on their, their free thinking and that the way they want to live. And that's understandable to an extent, but we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So I come back to that often. And it's something that, you know, um, I've applied in my own family. My, my son, when he was turning eight, we decided that we wanted to give him a small rite of passage ceremony. And we sat down, we watched a slideshow of his life right from birth up until now. And uh, we had him, you know, light a candle and we just talked about the the aspects of his life that we've loved to watch and who he's becoming. And we sort of celebrated his new status, having completed a full seven years on earth. And then, you know, we, we had his favorite food together and just like spent some time uh, together that was framed in a more ritualistic ceremonial way. Those are the kinds of practical things we need to be doing to counter all the social engineering that is creating so much chaos. As a therapist, I've gotten an up-close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving yourselves the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. Wow, I love that. That's beautiful. And I commend you for sort of swimming upstream. I mean, I don't know about the community that you belong to or how much support there is around you for those sort of things, but I often feel like those elements are missing from my life because there's a sort of thing that, you know, if everyone around you isn't doing it, it's really kind of hard to go against the grain and make sure that you do carve out that space in your life for ritual and ceremony and acknowledgement of the seasons and cycles of life. Um, and I'm just thinking about how life is so short, but when we talk about, um, you know, the sort of modern sexual marketplace and this, this sort of state of disaster that things are, are in for, you know, young and even not so young single people, um, you know, you talk about the way pornography impacts men, for instance, and I couldn't agree more. And I think that we have 
a real dilemma on our hands for those, you know, and I, I feel like I especially want to reach out right now to my listeners who are in their 20s or who are single because, you know, without without that energy of swimming upstream and pushing against the grain as you are doing to carve out, you know, the values that matter to you for your family, here's what will happen in my estimation, just based on human nature. Um, females are more agreeable than males and uh, girls and women have the instinct to nurture whether or not they're aware of it. Um, and I, re- I recognize that whenever I say things like this, I offend some people and, you know, sorry, not everything I say is for everyone. Um, and if you want to send me a nasty email about it, think about instead maybe using that energy to like write your own blog or create your own podcast, people. <laughs> That's what I have to say <laughs> to the critics. But, you know, so I'm about to say a bunch of things that are not PC. But in general, um, women are more agreeable than men and have the instinct to nurture. And what I've noticed for a lot of women in their 20s who are single or not so single, but let's say not married and childless, is that that instinct to nurture gets um, directed inappropriately oftentimes onto their partners um, and can sort of lead to coddling and infantilizing their partners without holding appropriate boundaries or expectations for how their partners should really be showing up for them to demonstrate that they're worthy of the relationship. And then you have, you know, men who kind of remain in that sort of man-child stage where they're not taking personal responsibility for your life, like you said, because they don't have to, because they have porn and because they have women who are sort of in a sexual or dating marketplace that works against their own interests. So it's easy for men um, to sort of be slackers or Peter Pans and kind of um, put off the, the real challenges associated with truly growing up. And so they then they kind of have everything being catered to them between porn and their nurturing partners and, you know, DoorDash and Uber Eats um, and Amazon, <laughs> like, yeah. and video games, right? And and between the porn and video games especially, they're getting that kind of artificial dopamine hit. I mean, it is their body's own dopamine, but it's also coming from an artificial source because what is the evolutionary purpose of dopamine? Well, it's to tell you when you're doing something that's good for your survival to encourage you to do it more. That's why, for example, we get a buzz from eating things that are sweet because we evolved in environments in which calories were scarce um, and especially calories from things like fruit or honey, natural sources of sugar were quite hard to come by. And so when you came by them, it was like time to celebrate. Let's you know, indulge in everything that we can find, right? And now you take that same evolutionary instinct, put in a time that there's, you know, diabetes inducing candy bars at every check register and and you find yourself in a, in a bit of a, a bind here right so you know porn and video games are sort of they're like the kit kat bars of the internet right where um where it, they hijack our dopamine system which is basically meant to encourage us to to do ambitious things and get a reward for them so men are getting that that hit like they've achieved something, whether that's achieving, you know, defeating the enemy or winning the race in the video game, or whether that's achieving having, you know, just scored a really hot partner. Now, if you take away these um, artificial forms of stimulation and you, let's say, go back 300 years um, and uh, imagine that uh, prostitution is not an option, let's say it's not in the budget <laughs> or it's not in your culture or, you um, then, you know, 
what what does a man have to do to get that same hit of dopamine, that same reward, a feeling of accomplishment, feeling that he has succeeded? Well, it's it's to actually make something of himself, right? To be brave, to be strong, to be smart, valiant, successful, competitive. Um, and so, you know, in our sort of modern environment where people's dopamine systems are constantly being hijacked, you have all these sort of men who are eternally in this Peter Pan stage, and then you have these really unsatisfied women um, who don't expect very much of their partners. They're chronically unhappy or everyone's single and they're all dating and hooking up and nobody's getting what they need out of relationships. Meanwhile, women are delaying having children because they've been taught that that's what it is to be free. Um, oftentimes they're sort of messing with the endocrine system using birth control without being aware of how it impacts their brains, their moods, their mate preferences and all of that, which again, that book by Dr. Sarah Hall or Hill can't remember, but this is your brain on birth control is a great resource for that. Um, and, and, and life is passing, right? And then like, it takes so much longer for men to realize that these artificial sources of dopamine are not actually truly rewarding on a deeper level, that they haven't really built anything. Maybe their health starts failing or, or their money, or they realize that they're truly lonely and that, um, you know, OnlyFans isn't cutting it. Um, and meanwhile, like women wait until they're almost infertile <laughs> and then they're reliant on the fertility industry, which um, by the time this episode comes out, I will have released an episode I just did with Jennifer Lal on this fertility industry. And I just think about how life is so precious and we kind of have this illusion that we can just kind of throw away all this time. Um, there's a book, um, there's a woman named Meg Jay. She's a psychologist who specializes in understanding the um, specifically the decade of being in one's 20s. And um, I believe her TED Talk is called Why 30 is Not the New 20, and her book is called The Defining Decade. Um, but it feels to me like uh, a lot of people kind of don't have that wisdom of realizing how much that time is slipping away. So all of that is to say that, you know, I commend you and anyone like you who's sort of pushing against the grain to say, no, these things really matter. Like we have to acknowledge the significance of of life and time's passing and the difficult decisions that we have before us. And we have to cherish our relations with the opposite sex and try to make them as as healthy as possible and try to kind of step into that position of responsibility of self-actualization as a man or woman, a, a mother or a father. I think, I mean, so much of what you're saying to me is just maps out as this war on on the family to a great extent, the, the the impact on on masculinity specifically is a good example. The weakening of men is a big problem. It's something that you know I've seen. Unfortunately, I, I really have seen a, around me. It's one of the reasons I'm passionate about dad army and mom army because there's a real need for men to step up to a greater calling and step in into the difficulty of it. It's been interesting to see that. In a lot of the chaos that has unfolded, um, you know, with e even just with like the lockdowns and the masking and a lot of that, you had a lot more moms who felt the need to protect their children from some of those choices and, and way less fathers is what I observed in my in my real life community. And I saw online as well. And I really wondered about that. I wondered why there wasn't that instinct in more men to 
stand up and protect the women and children in that very, very basic way. So there seems to be a, a very successful weakening of, of men in that regard. And it's no wonder then that you have girls in this position now, a lot of these girls who are becoming trans. You know, you look at what's before them. So they're, they're, they're perhaps seeing porn, right? So on, on that level, the idea of sexuality is being framed through pornography, which is not a good way to understand sexual uh, anything, really. It's so incredibly warped, especially in ways that, that are harmful to the women. And then they're also seeing feminine icons who are, you know, hypersexual and they're saying that's feminism, that's female liberation. And then they have men who have been weakened by video games and pornography. I mean, with all of that in front of you while you're going through adolescence and suddenly you get handed what you think is a ticket out, you go and you get the testosterone and the double mastectomy, you think you're escaping this horrible nightmare that you really are being presented with. Like it really is not look good. So to an extent, I, I have a deep understanding and a compassion for girls who, you know, th they're presented with this false idea of womanhood and what it's going to be like to be a woman. And they're also being given options that are really kind of depressing and grotesque. And so to an extent, you can't blame girls for wanting to turn away from that, uh, even though they're being misled and, and it's through disinformation and, and coercion that they're ending up down that path. To a certain extent, they're responding authentically to a pretty ugly scene, you know, to, to what seems like a very, very unfortunate path and that they don't want to step into. So I, again, I think this is like if we if we were celebrating womanhood correctly, and if we had men who were seeking to get their dopamine from true difficult achievements, from deep struggle and overcoming that struggle. You know, I'll say that this is something certainly I had to come to experience because I, I grew up, I was affected by pornography. It was very easy to access at a very young age. It certainly affected me. And I had my whole journey removing that from my life. And so now I do very much understand the difference between the, that dopamine hit from something more uh, artificial versus a deep achievement. And I've even, you know, I'm working very hard to give my son that experience. Um, I see the difference for him when he beats a level on a video game versus when him and I have, will have like these wrestling challenges where he has to touch my face like 15 times and, and we'll, we'll get into these like 15 minute wrestles where it's like as, you know, as, as much as he can go, he has permission to be as aggressive as an intense as, as he wants. And I see the response in him when he wins like the celebration and like the light in his eyes and the the response in his body is so immensely different than when he's like, hey, I beat that level on this video game is pretty cool. Or, you know, or the excitement from getting like a, a candy bar that he really loves. Like, I really see the difference. It's so clear. I don't know that he does yet because it's just he's a kid and he's learning that. But I also look back and see where that wasn't handed to me in my family unit that wasn't passed on to me from my father, probably because it wasn't passed on to him either. And so it makes you wonder how far back is some of this damage? Um, you know, how far reaching is it in our past?
to get it to this point. Because if we're going to talk about social engineering, there are social engineers that understand how to create social engineering scenarios that are intergenerational, where you have to start engineering things from this one perspective at one generation. And then over time, you're going to get the result you want in the third generation. That is a behavioral science that is well understood. And we need to look at to what extent is that potentially happening? And even if we don't want to believe that it's a more conspiratorial social engineering situation, we still have to reconcile changes that were made in our social social structure three generations ago and how they're playing out right now. And I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to make cut. I wanted to say, hey, look, look at how far back we can go to see these very, very immense changes in our societal structure and in the moral fabric of society. And look how some of those changes really didn't unfold in their consequences for like two to three generations. And again, that's this ability to think generationally, not just in terms of what do I want to pass on to the seventh generation, but also this ability to think through time that way so that we can sort out how we got here because we might need to be digging a little further into the past than we suspect. Oh, it's absolutely fascinating. I feel like we could talk forever about this stuff. Um, I I want to take a moment to look at our questions from our locals listeners. Um, so for those who are just learning about this for the first time, I do have a locals community. It is at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. It is only $8 a month for the privilege of asking questions of my guests. How cool is that? If you join my community, you get to find out in advance who I'm going to be interviewing. You can ask questions of them. You can also ask questions of me. I set this up because lots of people want to ask questions of me. I am just at that level of notoriety where I hear from dozens of people every week, but I'm not famous enough for any of them to expect to not hear back. So that puts me in a difficult position where I have decided my solution is to redirect you to locals. Please pay $8 a month to join in order for the privilege to ask me questions. If you ask me questions as a locals member, I will respond in a live stream Q&A just for you, exclusive to members. Um, so I would call that a bargain. And if you don't want to join my locals community, that's totally fine, but don't expect to hear back from me if you email or DM me because I get hundreds of those a week. So I'm <laughs> just putting in a plug for my community. Also, you can get your first month free with promo code grandfather. Now on to our questions from locals. Um, I actually don't know if this person wants me to identify them or not. So I'm actually not going to name them because this does contain some personal information. However, we have two questions from one of our listeners for you. And as always, the questions from this community are great. So a locals member asks, Simon, I am the father of two three-year-old girls in Oregon. In their preschool, four out of six of the staff identify as transgender, all female to male, or non-binary. There are regular pronoun reviews with parents and students to keep up with changes as some of the staff progress on their so-called gender journeys and change their names or pronouns. There is at least one other preschool kid who has gone through a full social and cosmetic transition, male to female. Well, let me read that again. There is at least one other preschool kid who has gone through a full social and cosmetic transition, male to female. Mm. At around two and a half years old, quote unquote, he realized he was a girl. 
questions. First, how common is this kind of thing throughout the preschool and primary school years? How concerned should I be as a parent? And what are your thoughts about what to do if there is reason for concern? I think it is increasingly common. I mean, uh, this is being implemented from the perspective of gender theory and gender affirmative care, which do seek to implement these ideas as young as possible, because from their perspective, there's uh, like a gender matrix that is influencing these kids in a harmful way. And the idea is that you don't want them to be caught up in these dangerous gender ideas. And so there is a push to get these younger and younger. I think people need to be very, very careful with public schools in general. Um, we have chosen to homeschool and to unschool to the extent that anyone can, I believe they should. However, I do work with parents who are still going the public school route and they, their goal is to be very, very intentional with their children. So they talk every day about what's in the school. They, they very intentionally guide the child to question what is going on. So there's just a lot of deep conversation, uh, that is focused on, Raising a free-thinking child. I think understanding free thought very, very specifically is really important. And so the best definition I know of free thought is the ability to produce free thoughts um, using logic, empiricism, and reason. The empiricism part is important because it has to do with your direct personal experience. And you produce those without relying on dogma, authority, or tradition. So I personally always try to keep that anchored in my self and in the way that I am raising my children. And I know that the people that I know that have decided to keep their kids in the public schooling system, even though they are deeply concerned about this, they make every day an intentional exploration of what happened in class today, how to question it, how to navigate it. Because I know there are some families who feel they cannot go the homeschooling or unschooling route. But to the extent that it's possible, I, I think that there is so much coercion in the public schooling system that Parents should try to avoid it if they can. Well, thank you for that. Um, I remembered midway through that. Don't you also have a podcast? I do, the Finding Free Thought podcast. Finding Free Thought. And where can people find that? You can go to my website, www.simonessler.com, and that will give you access to all the platforms that it's on. And uh, we're on a bit of a break now, but we're actually about to launch our next season in the next week or two. Okay, great. We'll go over all that stuff again at the end. I just remembered halfway through that when I introduced you, I didn't even mention your podcast. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop, where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. So yeah, I, I thank you for that answer. And I would also just respond to this locals member um, and to anyone who's been thinking about this that I don't think we know how these children's brains will be impacted by this stuff yet. I, I don't know that we've ever run this experiment as humans on children trying to decondition the sexual recognition instinct, which is is so fundamental as humans. And, you know, something that's been on my mind and, and coming up in some other recent conversations lately is that 
the children, or actually, I remember where it came up. I was recently interviewed by Brantley and Dan De La Fay on a Dangerous Rhetoric podcast. And toward the end, they asked me about drag shows for children, which I'm honestly tired of hearing about because I'm like, why? Why is this even a thing? Um, mm-hmm. But I remember talking with them about, you know, this is 2023. We're talking about three-year-olds here. We're talking about children who were either born during the pandemic or were pretty much babies when it started. And so more of their life has taken place during the pandemic than not. That means that they've had fewer social experiences than most children their ages up until recently. And they've seen fewer faces. They've seen a lot of faces hidden behind masks and they've had probably more screen time than ever as well. And so when we take children who already have all these things working against them in terms of their capacity for social and emotional development, facial recognition, and um, things like that, then you add to that the conditioning around, you know, trying to kind of groom these kids into looking at these grotesque figures with all these makeup. They look like scary clowns and being told that this is a friendly, safe person, even though they're gyrating and half naked. I mean, I I think it's I, I don't know what the impact is on children uh, to yeah. to be conditioned like this at such a young age. And I've also talked about how um, I think the sort of catchphrase I came up with for this is it's it's all rainbows and unicorns until the needle and scalpel appear. In other words, that there there is an agenda here with regard to pushing gender ideology on children at younger and younger ages because. It would be child abuse to even suggest to a three-year-old or, as this person said, a two-and-a-half-year-old that there should be any kind of um, hormones or surgeries, that, you know, to, to even propose to this child and converse with them about what it entails to be um, trans, it, it would be horrifying. You shouldn't introduce those concepts to a child, and and yet by introducing at this young age the idea that a boy can be be a girl, you are setting them up for, um, you know, being 10 years down that path when it comes time for the medicalization. So, of yep. course, these people want your children at the earliest ages possible because it's just all that, you know, that much more time to indoctrinate them, to get them sort of committed to this path so that they don't know any other way of being or living or identifying. Um, And you have that much more of a temporal separation, a a separation in time between the onset of this identification and the time that the real consequences start, which are the the medical harms that come from it. I think the chances go very high. Like when a child has been socially transitioned, the chances of them going down the medical path is something like 90%. It's very, very, very high. Definitely I would, I would with in- puberty blockers. There's 95% of children who go on puberty blockers will go on to cross-sex hormones. It's important that people look at the literature as to why they stopped gender affirmative care in the United Kingdom. This is really important for people to look up because there was a review done by a doctor named um, Hillary Cass, and she reviewed the Tavistock Institute's gender clinic. And they radically, radically changed their approach to all of this. They ended the gender affirmative model. And one of the things they state in these changes is that even socially transitioning is a severe psychosocial act that could have long-term implications and that we do not understand 
the difficulty or what the process might be like for a child to try to go back after having socially transitioned. It is not understood at all. This is why they don't even encourage social transitioning now from that perspective um, in, in the way that they're managing this in the UK. So when you look at a healthcare system as large as, as it is, uh, that the national healthcare system in, in the UK, making these statements is a big deal. And I, I try to direct parents to, to that fact as often as I can, to the fact that gender affirmative care has been ended in the UK, in Sweden, in Norway. Um, all of these countries have turned around and stopped doing this fact that it's still going on in Canada and America um, does not mean it's backed by any science. In fact, quite the opposite. And you have to wonder why these, these entire nations ditched it completely. Um, but I would also th say that parents need to understand the laws in their area. Like, for example, here in Canada, I don't know where this person is. Where did they say? Or Oregon. Oregon. Okay, I don't know what the laws there are. But here in Canada, if you have a child that claims they are a different gender as a parent, you legally, technically, you have no choice but to affirm them. And they consider anything other than affirmation conversion therapy in Canada. So parents have to be very careful because parental rights here are, are being stripped away from, from these new changes. So that if you did anything to try to deepen your child's connection with their physical body instead of affirming them, to be framed in that way. Um, it's, uh, you know, so people need to understand that those laws are being implemented They've been implemented in Canada, but there are different states that are trying to implement the same laws and parents need to take note of that. And, and perhaps if it hasn't been implemented, then you could be someone who stands against it if they try to pass a bill like that. Well, Simon, you have no idea how perfect your response is because the next question, let me read you the next question. You started answering it. For Simon, okay. please help us understand what is happening in North America in contrast with Europe and then in contrast with the rest of the world. Which countries or regions are showing more and more adoption of gender ideology, which are rolling back their, quote, gender-affirming policies, and what can we in North America learn from all this? Yes, yes. Okay, so uh, as I said, UK, Norway, Sweden, um, just to name a few, I think there's others, but they, they have all entered their gender-affirmative care because they found that the gender-affirmative model was not backed by science. They found that it was hurting children. Um in the UK, they, they did this because they could not understand why there was an 8,000 or a 4,000% increase over eight years of girls seeking gender affirmative care. Um, that was an entirely new phenomenon, right? So the, the decades of research on gender dysphoria show that this was predominantly preschool age boys uh, who struggled with gender dysphoria, clinically speaking. What we have now is an explosion of adolescent girls with no previous history of gender dysphoria saying they're trans. That's entirely new. I think in terms of how this is unfolding in North America, um, still, um, I can't see it as anything other than information warfare because I see good information being hidden from loving parents. And to me, that is information warfare. And I'll give you an example. And I actually, I wrote about this extensively. There's an article I published uh, for Badlands Media. If you look up Badlands Media, their substack, there's an article that I, I outlined all of this, actually, and, and how it's still going on in North America and Canada and America specifically. So one of the ways to understand information warfare in terms of gender ideology um, is the, the capturing of our institutions, right? Foundational institutions have been captured by this. So if you go to Scientific American, 
there's an article that they have that's about the life-saving benefits of gender affirmative care. And if you look at all the citations in the Scientific American article, you'll see that they, they're only willing to cite American institutions that have been captured by gender ideology, but I think it's more important to notice that they're not citing anything from Europe. They're not citing anything from the UK or Norway or Sweden. None of these places. They're very careful to only cite the institutions within America that are participating in this, and they're creating a kind of information bubble so that it seems as if this has all been backed by science. Uh, that's a very, very dangerous thing to do to people because parents deserve access to good information. And so to me, that's why I call this information warfare. It's very curated. We all know that we live in a, in a globalized society, especially in terms of information. Right? You can find out what's going on around the world pretty easily. But when we see that these large media entities like Scientific American are intentionally trying to create a bubble of information that is um, not citing anything from elsewhere in the world where this is being entirely challenged, that's highly curated. Trying to create a local infor information phenomenon, um, that has to be done intentionally because we live in this globalized society. So it should be noted as such. Uh, another good example of how foundations in our society were captured would be here in Canada, where in 2016, they modified the human rights laws to include gender expression as a human right. And this was at a time when people were not really hip to what was going on with gender ideology and where things were headed. And so there wasn't as much pushback as there should have been. And um, now you have gender expression as a, a human right and the main issue with that is that it's vague and it's intentionally vague. What does gender expression mean? Well, they don't have to define it. This is why you had the teacher in Oakville wearing the, the giant prosthetic breasts and teaching in front of the children saying, you know, that I, I'm trans so I can do this. The problem is that that technically fell within the human rights code in Canada because it was gender expression. Um, funnily enough, that's actually my high school where that all happened. You went to um, that high school? I went to that high school. Wow. Um, so I think it's really important that we see the, the we have to see some of this as warfare because um, you don't want to be in a war with no situational awareness. You don't want to be in a war and not realize that you're in a war. Um, there's a modern kind of warfare called fifth generation warfare that I've, I'm studying a lot. Um, it's something that a lot of people are writing about. And I think it's important to understand it because it's a form of warfare that is designed so that the people being attacked by it do not understand they are being attacked and they do not understand that they are in a war. And this is a well understood form of modern warfare. And I would say that a lot of what's going on with gender ideology fits into the, the construct of fifth generation warfare. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, constantly trying to cultivate situational awareness from that lens. And I'm raising my children with, with some understanding that they are in a war zone and that there, are, there is you know, an attempt to capture their minds, not in a scary way, in a way that is interesting and fun. And we joke about it, uh, mostly with my older son. But I think this is really important to understand. So, you know, I, I encourage people check out that. The, I go into this in much more detail in the article, but I think seeing information warfare is important because it can give you compassion. Like I know a lot of people, a lot of people that follow my work, there's probably more right-wing people than left-wing people, but there is a mix. And sometimes there's this idea that 
parents participating in transitioning their children or child abusers and like they're these horrible people. But like you have to look at it from the perspective of information warfare. If you have a loving parent who is number one, being emotionally blackmailed by their their doctor who says, do you want to, uh, would you rather have a dead daughter or a living son? So number one, they're, they're emotionally blackmailing these parents. But then there are parents who then they try to dissent. They try to go and find good information that dissents against the gender affirmative model and they can't find it because it's being censored and it's not in their newsfeed and that's not their fault. Um, and so we do need to, to understand that. And I think it's why we all, to the extent that we can, should be trying to find and share good information so that we can actually save girls because some parents really need help with that. Wow, Simon, fabulous answer. I feel like we could talk for days, um, <laughs> but we should probably leave it there. So um, I, I think there are many places to follow up and many different places to find you. Let's kind of go over all of them. So you mentioned your website is simonessler.com. You also mentioned an article at Badlands Media Substack. Um, you have your film that, as of the release of this podcast episode, will have just come out. It's called Cut Daughters of the West. And you have the URL right here on the screen for those who are watching. For those who are listening, it's daughtersofthewestfilm.com. Um, and then you also have several other films on several different platforms. So can you just run through all the different uh, places to find your work? Yeah, absolutely. So you can see the, the layout of my work at my website, but the two main platforms I have my premium content are, are Rise TV. And so that's where I have my three season series, Worlds Within. I get into the metaphysics of warfare, um, the metaphysics of human learning. I uh, explore inner awareness and the concept of inner awareness in human spiritual development. Um, and then there's my 60 minute comedy special, uh, which is called Theorize About Conspiracies, and that's a sketch comedy special. And then my series, Simon Esler's Dystopian Imaginarium. And uh, that's my my sci-fi sketch comedy special, or series, I should say. And then on Dauntless Dialogue, you have uh, my series, Superorganism, which is a six-episode docuseries on the war on the family. And then my film, Vague Rules. But I will say that as a bonus for people who rent or purchase my film, Cut, I am actually giving you access to vague rules as well as a bonus feature of getting that film. And that's a short film. It's like a 40 minute film that explores a lot of this. Actually, it looks into the kinds of communist warfare that have been used to install critical race theory, gender ideology, and a lot of the, the COVID lockdowns and the response to COVID. There's a through line there of communist warfare that um, teach people about and connected to the history of China. Um, and so that will actually be a bonus that you get if you go and, and rent or purchase that. Awesome. Now I want to watch all your films. And you're on social media. What are your handles? So if you catch me on Instagram, it's uh, Simon underscore Essler 1111. And I'm on Twitter as Simon Essler. Um, you can also find me on Telegram and YouTube and Rumble. And I think all of those, you should be able to look up Simon Essler. You'll find me there, and all of that is also linked on my website. And you have your podcast, uh, Finding yes. Free Thought. Where can people find that? So Finding Free Thought podcast is on Apple, Podbean, Rumble, YouTube, and I think that's it for now. I think people can find that directly from your Simon Esler YouTube, right? 
Yes. And it's on the website. If you want to like, there's a page on my website that's specifically for the podcast and it links you with all the different platforms that it's on. So you can go and you can go there and follow from wherever you listen or watch podcasts. And um, my next one is with the neurocurious therapist. Okay. Um, Teva. Teva. Yep. Yeah, she's been on my show as well. And I see yeah, you've, she's great. you've interviewed my friend Pamela Garfield Yeager, who's been on this show yes. as well. So yes, yeah, lots great. of overlap. It's so it's so fun for me in this in this whole like community of podcasters and YouTubers um to just find it, it feels like every time now I'm preparing to either have a guest on my show or go on someone else's show, I look up their other work and then oh, there's my friends. I interviewed that person. And yeah, it's a it's a small world. It's just big enough to be interesting and small enough to be cozy. <laughs> yeah, true. Well, Simon, it's been an absolute pleasure. I um, am so happy to help spread the word about your film. I wish you much success. Of course, we also want people to watch my film, Affirmation Generation, which you can watch now or anytime at affirmationgenerationmovie.com. And again, if you want to join my locals, if you want to ask questions of future guests or questions for my private members only live streams, that's at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. In addition to all my other stuff at sometherapist.com. Thanks as always for listening. Simon, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Some Therapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at sometherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm Some Therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it. <laughs>